when you're not actually making the dials and you aren't in control, full control of your own destiny, that is a, that's a different feeling than being an individual contributor where you are in full control, right? You have to say, okay, do I have the pieces in place and do I have the right makeup of a team in order to succeed? And that's, that's really challenging because sometimes that resulted in giving more territory or more leads to best performers and, and, and transparently pulling them away from some of the underperformers. And sometimes it resulted in, um, you know, just, just straight letting go of the, the underperformers, which was something that I was not accustomed to and I did have to learn. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. All right, welcome to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. I'm excited today to be joined by a good friend of mine, Danny Leonard. Danny is a co-founder at a company called Ramped, uh, who are really trying to improve the job search process. But I actually first met Danny um, working as a consultant. We ran into him. He was consulting as well for a mutual client, helping redesign their sales process. And so Danny has had a lot of experience uh, in various industries and is still very involved across multiple companies. And so I'm actually going to let Danny uh, do his own introduction. Danny, tell us a little bit about what you're working on and, and what you're involved with. Yeah, for sure. Th- thanks, Spencer. Uh, great to be here. Great to be with you again uh, and pumped to continue to collaborate with you. I We'll start by introducing myself as as the human. Uh, so I'm I'm Danny. I am a uh, proud father of two young boys, uh, four and two, uh, a husband, brother, friend, and somebody who uh, imagines himself uh, someday being a pillar in the community wherever that community is. So uh, that's who I am as a as a human. And right now, what I'm working on and what I've been working on more specifically in the last four years has been a company ramped. And what we're doing is we are out to fix the job search. And the reason that we started on this problem specifically, my co-founders and I, uh, is because we had all experienced significant pain in our own job searches. So I graduated in a time, 2009, where the market was completely screwed to to, to just use a a very simple word, right? Like there were no jobs, um, people were hurting, sectors were demolished and uh, I graduated from school into that climate and I, you know, was somebody who graduated from business school with a finance degree thought, okay, I'm going to get an investment banking job, no problem. This is just what happens. And uh, without without really uh, understanding why all the jobs in that sector had been eliminated. So uh, it took some time to regroup. And the message given to me at that time from my parents actually was just take any job you can uh, work even for free and see where it goes. And I took some of that. I, I did take any job that I that I could find. I did spend some time thinking about what I actually wanted. And I wound up at a company called Groupon, which obviously you know the story now, but back in the day, it was around 75 people. And uh, I took an unpaid sales internship, uh, not knowing what sales was. And the rest is kind of history. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a great place to start out. I mean, uh, get into a tech job, not getting paid is obviously never ideal, but uh, some people nowadays are like, never work for free. And I'm like, man, I, I worked for free. It got me a lot of places. Clearly you did. So certainly if you don't have to work for free, I wouldn't. But uh, but yeah, sometimes that's exactly the leg up you need to get some experience and break into an industry. So as you started in sales, how long did you work kind of as an employee, either at Groupon or other companies before you started to think a little bit bigger in terms of entrepreneurship? 
Yeah. Yeah. Really good question. So uh, I think I realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was around 13 years old. So the origin story, if you will, was uh, I acquired and not even like acquired is the wrong word. I was given a bunch of Beanie Babies and I thought, you know, I saw all these prices going up of these Beanie Babies and I thought, okay, this is kind of cool that they have some value associated. So I would trade and try to find the best ones. Uh, and right around the 2000 stock market boom, uh, there was a store, I grew up in Minnesota, a store in Minnesota. And uh, I walked in one day, it was actually like a trading card store. And I went in to just like, you know, buy some, buy some Michael Jordan cards. And uh, what I saw was the price of the beating babies is like right in front of my face. So what I did was I evaluated my, my uh, collection and sold some of the most valuable ones and you know made whatever 500 bucks or something like that and invested that in the stock market now uh the stock market story didn't turn out so well because all the stocks i invested in were tech startups that ended up going to zero but mm. that got me thinking like okay there's probably much more to being an entrepreneur it's very exciting i know that feeling as a young kid there uh some of those feelings still exist so that really set me off on the path of uh thinking i wanted to be an entrepreneur be entrepreneurial and the way that I kind of attacked this journey was I need to build the pieces so that I feel confident or comfortable enough to go out on my own. So between that first role at Groupon in uh, late 2009, early 2010, and my first real entrepreneurial venture, which was where we uh, actually collaborated for the first time, my consulting firm, Keep Scaling, that took uh, around six or seven years for me to go from employee to true entrepreneur. And when you're an employee, I mean, so you start out unpaid intern, probably doing the absolute most grunt sales work, outbound calls, you know, cold outreach. I imagine you had all the stuff that everybody was uh, not wanting to do and yep. uh, got to start there. But by the time you left, if I'm not mistaken, I think you were kind of leading a fairly large team of salespeople. And so what were the skills for you that allowed you to move up from unpaid nobody to now having some real management and leadership experience. Because a lot of people, I think, that, that listen to this podcast are probably still employees. They don't even know if they want to be an entrepreneur or not someday. But I always say that these high leverage skills, learning how to uh, get results through other people, uh, coach and mentor, learning how to use technology to, to get bigger results. These are the things that even as an employee, they, they take you to the top of your organization. They advance your career faster. And so um, what were some of those key skills you learned uh, that allowed you to move up to leading a, a fairly large team at, at Groupon? Yeah. So when I got into Groupon, I was totally clueless. Honestly, did not even know what sales was. I pictured myself as somebody who's helping to build out a market or build the uh, local presence for Groupon in the city that I was responsible for, which at the time, that first city that I was on was Oklahoma City. They just launched it. They'd launched a bunch of other um, big, uh, big markets. And this was one of like the secondary markets. So I was jumping onto that. There was nothing there. And all we had uh, at that time, Groupon was moving really fast, it was like a two day training with our VP of sales and a playbook, which was all written down. But um, you know, we're in 2010 zone. So there's not outreach. There's no yes where there aren't automated systems to do anything. So I got in day one and I was like, I was totally lost. I didn't even know like how to enter a lead into Salesforce. It was crazy. 
So what I did is I honestly just shadowed the five to 10 best sales reps at the company. And I would just sit by them and, and take notes on every single thing that they did from start to finish, like how they wrote in their notes, how they entered leads into Salesforce, where they looked for sourcing those leads, how they uh, researched their market, the prospecting techniques they did, how many calls they did, how many emails they sent. And for the first, let's call it three months, I legit did every single thing that the best reps did uh, the best that I could. Like I was not a great salesperson. I was not a great communicator over the phone. I was not a great seller, but I realized that there were a bunch of inputs that would probably stay true over time. So I just focused on those. Uh, and then when I started to like feel a little bit more comfortable on the phones and started feeling a little bit more comfortable talking to merchants, uh, I decided that the best way for me to get ahead in that role was to be the top, the number one on the call chart every single week. Uh, and that is all that I focus on. Like I was legit, like, okay, the way I saw it and, and really this helped, uh, my VP of sales helped crystallize this for me was he wrote this equation down that was skill times activity equals success. Really, really simple in sales. So I had at that time, what I, in my head, positioned myself as I had, I had low skill, but I could be uh, amazingly successful if I just increased the activity to the absolute top that I could think of. So that's what I did. The most amount of calls, the most amount of emails, the most amount of leads. Like at night, I would go home and look at Yelp for Oklahoma City and look at all these local um, city guides online and just like manually enter in all the businesses I could. I would wake up the next day. I would call those businesses. I would call the ones that I had, top of the call charts, top of the activity charts, and then Finally, some sparks happen where I could see my performance, you know, drastically improve. And then um, at some point it kind of flipped, right? I think I led by example for the first 12 to 15 months at Groupon. And then I started coaching and then I started mentoring because folks wanted to pick my brain. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. I'm seeing what I did in the beginning. Now I'm becoming the, the teacher in that. Uh, and then I really gravitated towards teaching. And that's when... You know, I, my performance just turned into kind of a natural progression into management. That's awesome. I love that equation uh, of activity times skill. I think most people in, in any environment, sales is certainly a great example, but in, in any environment, people want to jump to just having the skill. They're like, man, this person that's so good at it doesn't seem to have to work that hard. They make it yeah. look easy. They, you know, and, and so if I could just get my skill, the problem is I'm not good enough. So I could never do sales. I'm not a good enough salesperson, but they're thinking that they have to get to mastery and then yep. they can do the activity. And that's such a limiting belief that I see people run into. Whereas when you look at it the way you did and say, I'm starting with the maximum of activity, I'm going to do unreasonable activity more than anyone else. Yep. Then the yep. skill gets developed. And I, I also love the other piece from that story that I think is so valuable to, to circle back to is just this idea of going and actually observing, being curious and watching the people that are good. I remember one of my first jobs, I was I did door-to-door -door sales for a lot of years early on. And I noticed that this guy on our team was always out selling me. And, but when we'd go on the doors together, I thought, man, I've, I'm, I'm at least as good as him on the pitch and on handling objections. And I'm working hard like he is. So, like, man, how is he getting these extra sales. And finally I asked him, I was like, man, what, what are you doing? You know, cause you're consistently getting more than me. And, uh, we had built up a friendship throughout the summer. And at the end he's like, Hey, listen, uh, I wasn't going to tell you this cause we were, you know, we've been on the same team, but since you've been asking, I'll, I'll tell you, 
I take out ads in the newspaper. Now this is dating me a little bit, but he's like, I, I actually just pay out of my own pocket to put oh, wow. ads in the newspaper that say this, this, and this for pest control. Cause we were selling pest control at the time. And then when people have a pest issue, if they happen to be looking at the newspaper, they call my cell phone number and then I just go sell it and I get the credit for it. And I'm like, wait a second, you're spending money out of your own pocket. He's like, yeah, but I get one or two of those a day. And so Genius, I'm yeah. consistently above you in sales working similar amounts because I had this other tactic I've been using. And I was just blown away because I, my mindset at the time was like, oh, well, like the company would pay for the ad and then I'll just talk to the person. He's like, no, no, no. If the company pays for the ad, they're going to send it to their call center and they're going to not pay you. So right. he's like, so if you want to get more leads beyond what you're doing on the doors, you got to get creative and do these other things. And he shared some other strategies with me, but that one blew my mind because I thought, I hadn't even considered something like that. And that's, those are the types of insights that, you know, when you get into it, if you're just thinking, oh, I got to be a better salesperson, my thought was he's got to be doing something on the doors I'm not seeing. He's got to be hitting more doors or maybe he, maybe he has more activity or maybe he's, you know, just more skilled than me. But he did have more activity. It was just through a different channel that I hadn't even thought about. So, yeah, I love both of those nuggets. Be curious, observe the best and adopt their practices. Yeah. Then, then ramp that activity up of doing what they're doing, even though you're not as good as them yet. And then the skill comes and then that's where the magic happens. So that's exciting. Yeah. All, all, all credit to, uh, to the great Darren Schwartz on that one. He was the, uh, he's the first, first sales leader. And, um, you know, somebody that I look back in my career and helped me tremendously throughout my career, uh, throughout the early stage of my career. I love, I love equations and frameworks. I'm definitely going to use that with people uh, from now on. I, I love that nice. one. So then as, as you, as you started leading sales, you know, it was a different skill set for sure than just being a great salesperson. And this is how I think pretty much everyone, everyone's transition has to go. First, you need to be a great individual contributor, but yeah. then when you move into leadership, there's a whole new skill set. Um, and so what were some of those things that you learned as you moved into those leadership roles that were more unique or new skills that you had to add to just, you can, now you can't just be the top caller. That's not going to get it done. And so what were some of those skills you had to focus on to thrive as a sales leader and starting to help drive process decisions, budgetary decisions, technology decisions? Well, tell me about that. Yeah, for sure. So I think I got a really good sense of leadership from a few places. So one I'd watch my parents grow up. My mom runs a uh, an accounting firm, private accounting firm in Minneapolis, and she's done it for the better part of the last forty years. Uh, same 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 role, right? They've always been a leader at the company since her early days. So I've been able to watch her in action. Uh, my dad led uh, some clean energy companies as well, so I've, I've been able to watch him in action. And then I did take a leadership position. It was at a summer camp, but I got a sense and a chance to motivate young folks at a, a very early age in my career. So, you know, between the ages of 18 and 22, took on leaderships at summer camp. So I had known that I had it in me to lead people and to motivate people. The rest of it was, I think, really learnable. So the managing a budget, understanding kind of the, the politicking that goes on behind the scenes, planning so that your team can be successful, making sure that you have enough support in order to hit your numbers as a team and as a unit, and then releasing some of that internal control, right? When you're not actually making the dials and you aren't in control, full control of your own destiny, that is a, that's a different feeling than being an individual contributor where you are in full control, right? You have to say, okay, do I have the pieces in place and do I have the right makeup of a team in order to succeed? And that's, that's really challenging because sometimes that resulted in 
giving more territory or more leads to best performers and, and, and transparently pulling them away from some of the underperformers. And sometimes it resulted in, um, you know, just, just straight letting go of the, the underperformance, which was something that I was not accustomed to and I did have to learn. So I think I started when I got that leadership role at Groupon, I kind of played that coach player role and I really wanted to be friends with my team. And I think that was probably the wrong first step. It's a natural first step and the natural first urge. But what I learned is I had to make decisions that were probably decisions I wouldn't make as a friend, but I had to make as a leader. Uh, and that learning curve was, I don't think as steep, honestly, as the, as the jump into IC and jump into salesperson, but it was really nuanced in some of the minutia and the details uh, and the emotional turmoil that I would go through was much more challenging than being an IC. Yeah, I love one of the things that you touched on there, this idea of asking better questions. You know, when you're in a leadership role, because you can't just solve every problem by your own outputs and you're relying on other people, high leverage roles require asking better questions is something that I've seen. And you talked about having to ask some of those questions of look, zoom out, look at the system. Where are we getting the best results? Why are we getting the best results? What needs to change from a process standpoint? How do I get all the right pieces in the right place? With that in mind, are, are there any questions on, on both sides? Are there any questions you've seen that are the wrong questions to ask that people go down that rabbit hole? Like, for example, how do I be friends with my team? You know, which, which can take you down a, uh, a bad path. You know, certainly it's great to be friendly with them and, and you'll build friendships. But yeah. if that's your priority, you might make the wrong decisions. And are there certain questions you think leaders need to be asking in order to get the most out of their team? Yeah, this is a, this is a really good question. So I have come to, and I don't think I realize this as a manager. I do think I realize this more as an entrepreneur. I have come to embrace the journey and the inputs and the controllables much more as an entrepreneur than I did as an IC. What that means specifically is I would focus heavily if I was given a goal uh, as a sales leader at Groupon or any of my uh, any of the startup stops um, post Groupon and say, oh, my God, I just need I need to hit it. How can I get the right team to hit this goal? How can I, what, what are, what is it going to take to hit this goal? I'd focus intensely on the goal. And what that lacked was the ability to focus on key inputs or key actions that I needed to take as a leader to prime a team or to prime myself to hit the goal. So now um, when I ask questions, they are about what challenges are out there that need to be addressed before we can start to scale, or what are the things within my control, within my domain that can orient a team or build a foundation so that we can do X. So now it's all journey and input focused where before it was a lot of output focus. And I think that's a key learning that I've had in the last, let's call it five years, but really the last three of, you know, talent and ability can take you a long way. But if you're not focused on the details and the inputs and what you can control, you will miss key steps along your journey. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And it makes me think of how one of the things I noticed as a leader, as my career has evolved, is 
it gets lonelier and lonelier. When you're an individual contributor, you can go look at what are all the top performers doing? What is everyone else here doing? As you continue to move up, it gets harder and harder to go observe and be curious about the top performers in that space. I know you're involved with like the, the Revenue Collective and 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 uh, you, I know you've built out a really strong network. Are there any tips or advice you would have for people who, even me, who, you know, when I, when I look around, I'm constantly looking right now for how do I go learn from the best? How do I get the right mentors or observe or get that feedback so I can ask those better questions and avoid the pitfalls where I, where I might not have someone in my close proximity or in my same organization who has the experience to observe? Yeah, um, I'm going to borrow a, a saying and then share a little bit about how I go about this. But it's a two-pronged approach, really. It's And there's not a, it's not a tactic. This is not a tactic. This is a uh, a mindset, an orientation, and a way, maybe a principle on how to live and how to how to go about, you know, your network. But for the professional network, I think there's there's two things. There's one, you got to be a little fearless uh, when you approach somebody. Like you will see a ton of influencers online now, people with massive audiences, people with big titles, doing big things, and you have to reset your mentality from, oh, that person will never want to chat with me or what do I bring to the table to like, there's, there's an angle here for us to connect uh, and I just need to find it. So you need to reset that and reframe your mentality. And then when you go out and ask for advice or guidance, the one thing that you should remember is show me that you know me. So that phrase means when you approach somebody, whether it's somebody who's super important or somebody who could be very important along the way and, and is just starting their journey, how do you show that person that you know them so that you can build enough attention around yourself and prove that, hey, this conversation is actually worth my time or this connection is actually worth my time? Like You could probably find an angle to connect with anyone right now, given the right amount of research and the right amount of care. There's so much information out there good and bad, you know, this is a good and a bad thing about people these days. But if you looked, if I looked you up, uh, or I looked myself up, or if I looked a prominent business leader up, uh, or a politician or an athlete, right, you could find something that they care about, that is warranting of you connecting, but it has to be genuine. And you have to prove it before somebody connects with you. But it's really as simple as, you know, hey, look, if I really want to connect with somebody, just reset your mind and say, like, this is worth both of our time. And then two, Again, show me, show me, you know me, right? Show that you have something interesting for them so that you can connect. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great uh, strategy and principle to, to think about. So then have there been any major challenges or setbacks on your journey? You talked about trying to control what you can control. And I think that's something every entrepreneur has to learn. You know, you've got to go through that process of like most, most, I don't know if this is true of all entrepreneurs, but it feels to me like most entrepreneurs have had experience being a high performer at something before. And that's, Usually in some environment where they had a lot of control, like you said, in sales, you have a lot of control over your own destiny. You, you really influence your own destiny quite a bit. And wherever you start, that feeling of I can control things is a really good feeling. It's a very safe yeah. feeling. It's something that you yeah. can just rely on, man. And in fact, one of the things I teach new leaders often is like what I, the biggest mistake I see new leaders make is they get into a leadership role and when things get stressful, they revert to their old role because they, they're trying to take control back. So they're worried. So like, let's say I'm a, a sales leader, my team's not making, my first temptation is going to be to jump in and go sell because I know how to sell. And if I can sell enough, then I can get us over the finish line. And 
that's fine if when it's warranted, but if that's your only method, you're going to be limited on how much you can ever do. If you don't learn how to get the result through someone else, if you don't learn how to inspire or motivate the other people or to hold them accountable, teach them how to think, get them to believe in the right principles, there's a new skill set as a leader you have to learn. Otherwise, you're always going to go back to that safety of, well, how do I get control back? And you just can't. The higher level you get to and the more high leverage games you play, control is not something you have. You really yeah. only control your own outputs, your mindset, your decisions. And so that is such a valuable lesson to learn for people, but it's a really hard one. Was there any challenges for you or setbacks or anything where that was that taught you that or, or, or that you really grew a lot from? Yeah, I mean, look, every every single day as an entrepreneur, uh, is, is there's a setback where you're on top of the world. Yeah, I honestly, like, uh, I'm still learning on this journey. I will say I can kind of like separate it into two. So I think for my consulting business, what was revealing to me a lot of times is that folks are paying me for my expertise in that role. So I had a lot of imposter syndrome because I really genuinely was like, oh, this is this is crazy that somebody wants to pay me for my time or for my efforts. And then at some point in that, you know, I, I started that in 2015, 2016, and it's, it's still technically active, but I don't really do much with it right now. At some point in the first two years that went away as I developed my own process and developed a blueprint for how to launch a customer and keep them happy and show results. Um, but that took a lot to overcome. That imposter syndrome was was certainly prevalent. I think I had it the most at the beginning when I took a role at 500 startups as a growth advisor and these startups would come to me and you know I was their sales coach for six months while they were in the accelerator program. And they would ask all these questions and like, I did know the answer to them, but I was also like, why are you asking me like what's going on? Uh, so, so that was, that was really cool. And I think that actually that, that accelerator program helped me get my, um, my reps in. So I felt more confident. And then, you know, for ramped, um, I will say, you know, building a technology venture back startup is by far and away the most rewarding and the most challenging thing that I've ever done professionally. I don't think there's a day that's gone by in almost four years now that I have been like, I feel 100% confident that we are going the right way, doing the right thing uh, in terms of like um, ops, right? Or operations or the product build out or a marketing approach. I do feel always 100%, even more confident today that the problem that we're solving is big and needs to be solved. And I feel incredibly grateful, lucky to have two amazing co-founders and great employees, uh, frankly, just like lucky to be around uh, around them in their spheres, people who are working the same with the same energy and intensity around this problem. So I think that has been eye opening. And I think what I've learned is you just got to embrace for sure with a venture back tech startup, embrace the chaos a little bit, embrace the journey. Um, I'm still getting there. Like I do wake up some days. I'm just like, oh, my God, everything's burning down. And then some days I'm like, this is the most success we have ever had this is the best day ever so you got to just kind of ride the highs and lows in the middle and be a little centered with it all but that, that does not come easily yeah it makes sense 
So with that being said, let's maybe talk a little bit about kind of what, what are the core problems that you guys are trying to fix with ramps and what can people that are listening maybe learn that, that are currently looking for jobs, especially right now, the job market has certainly swung. It feels a lot back towards the employer side, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of stimulus money and boom, booming economy yeah. and tech was exploding. And so in, at least in some sectors, it was really an employee first kind of market. Uh, candidates had a lot of negotiating power and were very, uh, had a lot of flexibility. Feels like the market has swung a little bit more employer side. And so I'm just curious your observations about that and about, you know, what are the core problems in either of those markets that exist for candidates and how are you guys helping to address those? Yeah, it's a, it's a, obviously we think about this every day um, and an intense amount of work goes into it on our side. So I'll, I'll, I'll start at the kind of the top level and bring us down into some of the tactics. So we technically started late uh, to 2019, but we called it official official in June 2020. So we have technically seen the COVID bust where everybody was out of work immediately and everybody was shock and awe. You obviously remember that uh, yep. it's not so long ago. The, re, the, the boom of jobs everywhere and can't hire fast enough, we can't hire enough talent. The initial kind of shock of the first round of layoffs post uh, the COVID boom. And then this, this like grind, it feels like a grind to the bottom or a stalemate or whatever you want to call this environment today. But it has been significantly harder for folks to find jobs today than it was a year, a year and a half ago. And I think it's actually getting a little worse, but I do, I do also feel like it will be better towards maybe halfway through next year if I'm offering up like some sort of estimate, although I've, I've also learned not to get into that business. So I don't want to give like a full, <laughs> this is going to happen. The economy has been, you know, a little bit tricky these last few years. But what I have seen is more on the tactic standpoint. Uh, oh, last thing I'll say on the high level is, you know, there's jobs reports that come out where they're like 300,000 new jobs were added this month and you know everything is booming. We've been calling BS on that for, for some time. And the reason that we've been calling BS, like yes, there are that amount of jobs, but that includes part-time, that includes non-traditional jobs, and that includes gig-ish work. So yes, there are those jobs available. Uh, the number of you know behind the desk, what you would consider traditional white collar jobs is around 20,000 when that number is 300,000. So you're seeing a little bit less than 10%. So that number is not enough to support the folks who are out of work right now. And what you're seeing on the tactical level is job seekers are applying to jobs, sight unseen, and this is the problem we're addressing. It's been existing for, for longer than ramp exists, has existed, but they're applying to jobs, sight unseen with um, you know these one-click apply buttons through LinkedIn and Indeed. Uh, they're applying to hundreds of jobs, some they're qualified for, some they're not qualified for, uh, and they are getting rejected sight unseen or, or not, you know, ever hearing back from an employer from hundreds of jobs. So that that's the environment people are walking into. So if you say, hey, look, I want a customer success job right now, uh, if you were to go online and you know, Google customer success jobs in the U.S. remote, you'd find probably 30 jobs posted this week. All 30 of those jobs would have 500 applicants already applied to them. Um, now, the exact opposite problem exists on the employer side. So those uh, those jobs, those funnels, those 500 employees, about 50 of them are actually qualified. So 50 of them have the requisite skill set, 
that matches the job description and they will probably interview 10 of those 50. So you're whittling that down really, really quickly. Uh, and that is approximately the issue that exists today, right? Too many people for not enough jobs. Uh, they're applying to jobs that are, they're probably not qualified for. And there's a lot of confusion on how to apply to jobs. So our system is really, really simple. Ramped has a bunch of free tools to help folks skip step in their job search right now. So you can go onto our, uh, our portal online, our platform online, rampcareers.com. You'll find AI tools that will help you write a cover letter better, will help you um, build up a resume. It will help you search and discover careers. It will help you understand the interview that you're about to go into. All of that is, is free. Uh, we have some up-leveled tools as well. So we have a massive, massive uh, platform of credentials, micro-credentials. So if you want to up-level your skills and it's really, really cheap to get access to this, I think it's about 30 bucks, you can get access to hundreds of different jobs and start to learn so that you look more attractive as a candidate. You also can access our automatic applier and that's a premium offering where we actually do the job search for you. We'll find the jobs for you. We'll apply on your behalf uh, and we'll just send you the interviews. So all of those things are available. We're building out our, our tool suite more. So you'll be able to um, look at our platform and very easily find jobs on your own, apply to jobs on your own. We have university partnerships to help college students. So we're, we're attacking this job search. We're building tools to make the job search easier today. And in the future, we want to reinvent the way that people look for jobs. So that's what we're doing today. Um, the guidance I would give, you know, the easiest thing, the easiest first step for a job seeker is one, make sure you're crystal clear on what you want next. Two, find jobs that you are a definite, definite fit for. So read job descriptions, make sure you are applying to jobs that you are only a fit for, because if you are outside of that box, maybe in the past, you could get your way into an interview or two. Today, that environment has changed. You will not get interviews going that route. So make sure you're applying to jobs you're a great fit for. And then three, do the homework, right? Re there's so many resources online from somebody's individual LinkedIn profile to a company's website to the thousands of hours of video now companies have online about themselves or about their work environment or about things they're doing. So just go the extra mile. And again, it kind of goes back to that, what I said earlier in the interview, but show me, you know me, right? Show me that you've done the research, that you care about this company, that you want to work here. You, you're a great fit for that role. And just tell somebody that, tell, tell the hiring manager, tell the recruiter, um, send messages and do it until you're blue in the face. Uh, it is a numbers game still, uh, as much as I don't want it to be. It is still a numbers game, so um, you know you just got to you have to you have to control your inputs and make those inputs count. That's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. I mean, we've seen that certainly as an employer. I haven't been uh, on the job search side obviously for more than five years since we started this company. But as we try to hire, when we post applications or you know job descriptions, openings, it's such low quality crap that comes in. You know, total not fit, total don't have the credentials, didn't even read what we said, stuff we were looking for. And so of the vast majority of that gets disqualified. Occasionally we find a candidate come through that's solid from there. Yep. But by and large, we, we find almost all of our candidates for roles we're looking for with individual outreach on LinkedIn. I mean, we're, we're literally finding people that we know meet our requirements and probably are already in a job successfully somewhere. Uh, not that that's a requirement, but it just tends to be the case in a competitive industry for talent. And so, and then we're starting and starting a conversation and telling them we have an opening that they might be a fit for sharing some stuff about us and trying trying to see if there's any interest there for them to apply. 
we've gotten way better results from that. Now it's very manual. That's not great, you know. Then we have from these open, you know, just sort of postings. That system is so flawed. And you know, I know people. I have friends who are applying for jobs right now and who've said that same thing. I've put in hundreds of applications. I don't see anything, you know, and not even hearing back. And they're highly qualified people. And so, yep. Uh, love to hear what you guys are doing on that. Uh, definitely going to send a few people your way to uh, to use those tools because that sounds really really valuable for a problem that is really challenging right now. Yeah, and and you know one one more thing I'll say on that is uh, a lot of folks. Um, this is a this is a time in people's lives where there is a lot of pain and a lot of struggle. The job search is not easy. It is a full time job, so it is very easy for me to sit here and say this, but the important thing to remember throughout this process is that you, the human, you are not your job search. Uh, regardless of when you find that opportunity, just know that this is not a knock on you as an individual. It is simply tough right now. And you just got to do your best to control, again, your mindset, your attitude, what's in front of you, the first step, the amount of you know people you reach out to on a daily basis. And again, yeah, you, you are not your job search. That's such an important uh, fact for people to just understand and, and keep in mind. It goes back to that thing we talked about earlier about what you can control, what you can't control. And so when it's a tough environment, it's a tough market, the systems are broken, then you know it's going to be tough. And that doesn't make you a worse person. So I love that message. And also, I wanted to reiterate something that you brought up uh, before when you were talking, which is this idea of there are ways to stand out. And, you know, I notice when we do interviews with people, now you have to make it to the interview first, obviously. So uh, there's steps before this, but if you get into the interview, I've had people that in my interview have quoted books that they know I value. In fact, I've written articles about books that have informed our culture. I've had them answer questions I asked in the interview and pull an exact quote from a book that I wrote an article on about why that book matters. And they went and read that book or read part of it and had that ready. Or they mentioned something they heard on my podcast. Or they don't say they heard it on my podcast, but they say something that is verbatim something I've said. And in my mind, I go, okay, you're really invested. Uh, or they mention things about our culture that are explicitly listed deep in our careers page or you know, somewhere that I know is not readily, easily available. To me, it's not like I'm going to give them you – know, they still have to be qualified for the role. Right. That's the first question. But then well, assuming you're qualified for the role, all those other things send a signal of when I'm talking to 10 or 15 people for a role and you're the person that was like – I care enough to go the extra mile. Well, that really impacts what I think you're going to do for my clients when I put you in a role where you're working with my clients. Are you going to yep. go the extra mile for them? Are you going to do your research before you show up to a client meeting? Are you going to make sure you understand the stakeholders enough to relate with them and to, to, to help solve their problems? I mean, that same attitude is what we want in people that work for us. And so not it's not like they're just flattering me to show, oh, I read your stuff. It's, right. wow, I can trust that you're willing to put in that work to go the extra mile and do your research. So it, it is a big green light on people when, when, when I see that in the interview process. Yep. Yep. Super cool. Super cool. I think that's, that's really on point. Again, the, the show me, you know me principle. Yes, absolutely. And so as you mentioned, the tools you're building, you've got some of those tools that are using AI. What impact do you see AI having either at ramped or in general in the marketplace when it comes to hiring and staffing? And is there anything that's going to disrupt your business or tools that you're currently using in your business. I would love to hear your insights on that front. Yeah. So I think, I think AI right now uh, is certainly top of mind for many industries. So I, I do see AI disrupting many industries. So archaic industries, 
industries where there's a lot of bureaucracy, industries where you need to, where you had a human making really complex decisions. And now those decisions can be, uh, those analog decisions can all be automated. So I do see that and, you know, examples of this, like perhaps law, perhaps accounting. Um, I do think that those, those industries will be disrupted a bit. I don't see AI replacing humans. I think what AI will do is build a more efficient world where there needs to be efficiencies and humans will find new industries to create. Uh, humans will find new ways to innovate. I think that's that's been a consistent that I've watched throughout my life is, you know, when a new tech comes out, people think it's the end of times for human jobs or human capital in, in, in companies. And I have not seen that be the case. Uh, I, I don't have a, as long of a career as some folks, but I've never I've, I've not seen that yet. And I don't think that will persist uh, for for things like the job search specifically. I do think there are meaningful improvements that can be made really simply with AI. So I'll give you one example. So cover letters have been a hot button issue for a long time. Folks uh, have required cover letters and I mean, employers have required cover letters. And when we interviewed around uh, 10,000 different talent acquisition folks, 70 plus percent of them told us they never read cover letters, even if they're required, they just don't read it. So that to us screams the ultimate check the box, right? That is something that is required and not used. Um, it is used as like, did you write the cover letter essentially? So we produced a cover letter writer that takes somebody's resume, it takes the job description, it takes the title and where they want to go. And in about 20 seconds, you'll have a beautifully crafted cover letter. Now we encourage folks to also read this before they put it out to make sure it sounds like you. But that saves somebody from 30 to 60 minutes they spend writing every cover letter down to 30 seconds, a meaningful improvement on their job search. Uh, and again, this is directionally correct, right? Cover letters aren't read, so check the box. Eliminate the time you spent stressing over a cover letter and gain time back in your life and gain time back in your job search. So that's where we're, we're making the innovation today on the margins. And then eventually we'll have a more seamless job seeking experience where that problem that I mentioned a few minutes ago on applying to 200 different jobs, uh, getting rejected from 200 different jobs, like that won't exist. You'll, you'll be able to, in the future, open up Ramped and see jobs that are definitely a good fit where the employer has already expressed interest and you'll just be able to interview, right? It'll all be there for you. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm very excited about that. And I agree. I think there's a lot of efficiency to be gained with AI. It'll be very interesting to see what evolves and how that how that changes, you know, various industries. As we wrap up here, I wanted to give you a shot to tell us what recommendations you'd give younger self, younger Danny, if there's a book, a resource, advice, wisdom that you'd impart, maybe even just two or three little bits of advice you would give your younger self that would have helped you uh, either accelerate your results or learn some of the lessons you learned quicker. Yeah, from from a mentality perspective, I think if I could give myself one piece of advice going back, it would be, you know, just 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 relax a little bit. I was definitely somebody who was angsting over what's next constantly, right? Like, what's the next step? When do I get to the next phase? Uh, and I would give myself a little more grace to just be in the journey, in the moment, uh, enjoying you know, the, the business that I worked at or the coworkers that I had. And, you know, the reason I say that is because even with that first one group on, 
I kind of thought the party would last forever. That's your first role. Groupon went from, in my time there, from 100 people-ish, a little bit less, to 500 people in about six months or three months, and then 15,000 people a year after that. So I thought this party would go on forever. And then you leave and you're like, damn, I never get to, essentially never get to work with a lot of these coworkers again. Um, that's kind of the end of our, our, uh, our powwow. So um, I would give myself a little more time to enjoy the journey. And then some tactical stuff, a book that I would have read earlier in my life, um, one by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich, a great book, one that um, he essentially like interviewed all the wealthiest people in America back in the uh, the early part of the, the like the 1900s, I believe, somewhere around there, um, pulls out their wisdom, pulls out their insights and what they were doing uh, around that time. And some of the lessons like still stand true today. And then, you know, one, one thing that uh, I continue to to live by that was something that I invested in early was was people. I think the most important thing that you can invest in in your career uh, is or are people. So what I mean by that is the people you're connected with, your employees, your coworkers, your superiors, your bosses, make sure you are putting the time in to invest in those people. One, it's a small world and people tend to come back around and uh, you want the feeling that somebody has about you to be really, really positive. And then two, you never know when you could be in need, right? Somebody may need you at some point. You you could be in need some other time. And I found that tapping into your network is uh, is great and people are willing to help when you ask them, especially when you've invested the time and energy and care into relationships. That's great advice. Well, as we uh, sign off here, Danny, is there any resources you want to share with the audience? Uh, where do people find you? Uh, if they want help on their job search, where do they go? Yeah, for sure. You can hit me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. That's the best place to reach me. If you want to reach Ramped, it is www.rampedcareers.com. That is the best place to find job search resources, up-level your job search. Uh, we have tons of free tools, some premium tools. Uh, we're just generally available. So if you ever want to reach out to us, founders, um, any of the employees, anybody is super happy to chat with you. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solve.Cloud. Solved.cloud. That's S O L V D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.